so tonight we are um, doing the second week on the Trinity. Uh, so last week we started the Trinity. Uh, this week we are going to be diving in a little bit more into a specific component, and then next week we will be ending the Trinity. And then the following weeks after that, we will uh, be looking at the specific persons individually. So that's, that's what that's going to look like. Let me open this up in prayer as you guys get all settled, and then we will start. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the opportunity we have each and every week to uh, look into your word, to see what you have told us about yourself, Lord, within it. Lord, I pray that we will be faithful to scriptures, Lord, uh, and that we will be faithful ultimately to you and what we confess about you, Lord. I pray that you will uh, speak clearly through me, Lord, as uh, we talk about the deep matters of who you are. Lord, I pray that you'll give everyone ears to hear uh, for those who will be watching online and for those who are here in person, Lord. Um, give us a clear mind. Uh, let us uh, think well of you, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So if you were here last week, not all of you were here last week, which is fine, but if you were here last week, there was a lot happening. Um, it was a quick overview, pretty much, of the Trinity. And it may have seemed overwhelming, which is fine, which is normal for when we start talking about the Trinity. But I hope for this week to take a little bit of a pause. We're going to be talking about a first component that we talked about last week, um, the ontological component of the Trinity today. That's who God is in and of himself. And the next week we'll be looking at what God does outside of himself, as in, in creation and redemption. So that's what that's going to look like. You could see the title on your notes, if you have your note sheet out, is the ontological trinity, the essence and attributes of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So quick reminder um, of what these terms mean before we dive into it. Also, last week I had this little glossary on the back. I still have it in the back for you this week as well. It's the exact same glossary as what was in your packet last week. Uh, so it will be helpful. We went over these terms already. But you can see the very first one, ontological slash imminence, uh, means the Trinity in and of itself, apart from creation and salvation. So that's what we're talking about today. Who is God? That's what we're trying to get after. Who is God? Um, actually, before we get into that, um, I noticed today uh, on Facebook that it's an anniversary of um, when William Tyndale uh, was actually um, tried and um, burned at the stake ultimately because of his translation of the Bible into English. Uh, so that happened October 6th today, but in the year 1536. So in the year 1536, William Tyndale uh, one who translated our Bible into English, into the English language, uh, was killed uh, by being burned at the stake. And 
I thought that was a significant thing uh, to bring up today because we are looking into God's word today because of the work um, that God had done through William Tyndale and uh, his faithfulness to God in translating scripture. Uh, So that happened in 1536, just as the Reformation was starting to take place. Um, All right, back into the topic, the ontological trinity, the essence and attributes of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, What is, if you were to think of the name of God, what would you say it is? When you look back in the Old Testament, who is God? What name does he give himself? There are many names, but what is the name? What was that? I am, right? I am who I am. That's associated really closely with ultimately Yahweh, right? God is Yahweh. I am who I am. So we see this explicitly, right, in Exodus 3.14, where he says, I am who I am. This is who I am. Uh, But what I want to point us at as we begin is this is the title that Jesus actually claims for himself in the New Testament. Jesus claims to be God. We know him to be God, right? And this is a title, a name, the name Jesus claims for himself. I actually don't have this passage, this passage for you on your note sheet, so you could write this down if you want. Uh, in John 8, starting in verse 23 through 24, uh, it says, And he said to them, this is Jesus, uh, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And a little bit later in the chapter, in verse 58, it continues and says, And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And uh, the Jewish leaders knew what Jesus was talking about at this point. So you could see in the very next verse, in verse 59 in chapter 8, it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him. They were about to stone him to death because who Jesus was claiming to be. All right. This is important to set this uh, first um, that to know that Jesus is the I am, um, along with the Father and the spirits. So we're going to be looking through a lot of passages today, a lot in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, as we look at specific attributes of who God is. Um, these are ontological attributes. Remember, it's who God is in and of himself. These are attributes of who our God is, who the I am is, which is a so associated with the Father, Son, and Spirit equally. All right, so we're going to go through these kind of quickly. You could see, what does God say about himself on your note sheet? He is in one essence and three in persons, right? One in essence, three in persons. This is what we talked about predominantly last week. So we went over that. We looked at passages to see that he is one, but he is three in persons. And we we're talking about a little bit of the distinctions last week of what is essence, what is persons, to be able to say that without contradicting, our, 
be, without being uh, contradictory, right? Um, but let's look through some of these passages. We're going to be looking at four attributes of God, four attributes about his essence. When I say the ontological trinity, I'm talking about his very essence, his nature, right? Talking about his oneness, what it means for him to be one. So therefore, it's these attributes, like I said earlier, are associated with all three persons of the Trinity. All right, so the first attribute we're going to be looking at is the Lord, Yahweh, is supreme. The Lord, Yahweh, is supreme. So what I'll do is I'll read all of these passages for us, and then we'll talk about it in light of everything we just read. All right, and then we'll make some concluding thoughts and then we'll move on to the next attribute. Does that sound good? So as we read through it, um, underline things that stick out to you uh, that's describing who God is. Um, Just different observations, circling things, underlying things, whatever you want. Mark up your paper as we read through it. All right. So 1 Corinthians 29, 11 through 12a says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. Here it's talking about Yahweh, right? Um, Referencing the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, Psalm 115.3 says, Our Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 4, 34 through 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason and returned it to me. Remember the context. He was acting like an animal ultimately for like seven years at this point, And he was uh, starting to get his senses back. And that was a judgment God put on him. So my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will amongst the, most, amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay uh, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And lastly for the section, James four thirteen and 15. Come now, you who say, to, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All right, so like I said, we're looking at four attributes. The first one, God is supreme. I purposely 
didn't necessarily give you a line to write a definition down. Um, because I want us to talk through these together based on these verses. Um, and you could bring up other passages that I didn't write down for this uh, to try to paint us a picture of what this looks like. Um, what it means for the Lord, for God to be supreme. Um, you could see some of my concluding thoughts um, on the supremacy of God. God is supreme because his will is authoritative over his creation. Uh, throughout these verses here, it talks a lot about his authority, his power, right? And his purpose or his will. Um, so you see his authority and his will being uh, displayed in his supremacy. So God is supreme because his will is authoritative over creation. And another observation I made, God is supreme because he has the power to execute his authoritative will. So he doesn't just have an authoritative will, but he has the power to execute it, to make it happen um, here in the world. I left the line open for you guys um, to come up with other observations for us to talk about it. What are some things that are sticking out to you guys in these passages that you think we could conclude or make an observation about? It's eternal, yes. And one thing you will notice is a lot of these attributes we're going to be talking about are all interrelated. Remember last week, we talked about the simplicity of God. God isn't made up of parts, we talked about. So his um, supremeness is also his eternality um, component, which is actually the very next attribute we will be talking about, which is his holiness, uh, which is also his love and justice and everything else we could come up with. What else? Nothing created comes close. That's awesome. His mercy is everlasting. Yeah. And a lot of these observations you guys are making, like I said, we will be bringing them out also in these other attributes, but that's really good. Yeah. Yeah, he is head above all. Nothing comes close to him, as Lonnie is saying, right? One of my favorite exercises is working through the Bible and seeing specifically what it says about who God is. Because when we start naming these things, um, we get a little bit more of a picture of just God's greatness, and we fall a little bit more in just awe of who he is. And this is where worship comes in, right? We worship God because of who he is and how much greater he actually is above us. He is so much more supreme. I was going to put, um, <clears throat> for the first attribute on here, that he is sovereign overall. But we're talking about the ontological trinity, right? Who God is in and of himself. His sovereignty talks a little bit more about his external works, right? He is sovereign over his creation. 
um, over us externally. He is supreme in himself. You guys see that distinction a little bit? It's not too important if you don't, but uh, that's why we're, talking, we're starting with his supremacy more so than his sovereignty. What are some other observations you could write down on this line? I, I really love the Daniel passage. Um, I think it's been over a year now since I taught through Daniel in the youth group. Uh, but all throughout the book of Daniel, you see King Nebuchadnezzar's um, hard heart, right? Uh, God is trying to get his attention, um, and he just keeps um, having a hard heart and not turning to the Lord. And then finally, after he ultimately became like an animal after so many years, um, because that's what God did to him, we see then his final confession here. He finally recognizes the greatness of who God actually is. Um, and so with that, so we see, again, God has complete authority over all things, over the kings of this world, right? King Nebuchadnezzar was a great king in this world's eyes, but God was king above him. And his will was above King Nebuchadnezzar's will. Uh, and then in the end, King Nebuchadnezzar still ultimately bowed down and recognized who God is. The James passage talks about prayer. Um, this is why, well, you could apply it to prayer. This is why many individuals would, sit, would pray, um, if the Lord wills, let this happen, right? Uh, we want to be praying in line of God's will. Because we know if it's in line with God's will, it will happen, Right? So remember, we're talking about the attributes that are assigned to the very essence of who God is. We talked about the Trinity last week. The essence is attributed to his oneness, which is what the Father, Son, and Spirit all share together. So this attribute, the supremacy of God, is attributed to the Father, Son, and Spirit, who is Yahweh. Any other observations? I observed God is supreme because his will never fails to come through or happen or occur. Yes, that's really good. That's really good. All right. The second one, I think this one is also going to be pretty quick. I don't think there's going to be a lot of discussion on this one. The Lord Yahweh is eternal. Therefore, the Son, or the Father, Son, and Spirit all three persons of the Godhead have always been eternal. This is what we're saying. So let me read Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. Again, underline, highlight, circle, whatever you see that jumps out. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Therefore, or before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, 
the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old, declared it, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There is no rock besides him. Um, so actually, uh, if you heard um, maybe a month ago now, when I had the opportunity to preach on Sunday morning, I told a story about the Mormon missionaries I was uh, talking with uh, week after week after week. Uh, and these were some of the major passages I would bring up to them. Uh, since they would confess and believe that we could become gods like our God, um, that our God was a man like us and became a God. Um, and so these are important passages to be able to look to and point to to others who believe that God had a beginning or God may have an end or there may be other gods that might rise up after him. All right, so some conclusions, observations we can make from this passage, from these passages. God is eternal because he was the first and will be the last. And I wrote, as you could see in parentheses, this does not mean he will exist in the eternal future alone. Um, we will be there with him. God has chosen those who will believe and understand uh, that he is the God eternal. The eternal God is also the one and only Savior. I like the, the Savior component because you see that this is also has Christ in mind, right? Who is the Savior of the world? Um, who is this one God with the Father and Spirit? Also, if you guys have critiques on any of my observations, feel free to jump on that. And also, uh, let us know what your other observations are for this one. That's a component of it. So people would say that God, or Scripture, ultimately in Ephesians 1, would say that he has predestined those, right? So it's that idea. Um, and I'm pulling that out specifically from the first Isaiah passage where it, says, um, where it says, I have chosen whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am here. So we have to be able to say that God has chosen those in some sense. Now everyone agrees in what that sense looks like. People nuance that a little bit differently. And that's where the discussion comes in. But in some sense, whatever sense you want to put that in, you have to say God chose us because that's the language he uses here. Which means he doesn't need sustenance. He 
Man, that's very significant, right? God doesn't need us. He didn't need to make us. He wasn't like lonely out there in eternity past, whatever that may even mean, that we can't even fully understand. Uh, He didn't need us because he wasn't a cosmic, lonely being. Um, And this is even more strong evidence. Why wasn't he? Because he was always existing in a perfect, loving, communal relationship within himself as the Father, Son, and Spirit, always there amongst each other, right? There's always been love in eternity past because there's always been love in the Trinity, which is really cool, which is why, like we saw last week, God is able to say that he is love. He is the definition of love. He has always been love in eternity past. If God was not triune, that wouldn't be true because there would not have been anything there for him to love. Other observations? I'm excited for us to get to the last attribute because I think that's where most of the discussion is going to come from. Um, But don't look ahead yet. (laughs) So, God is eternal, right? Uh, This is significant also because we we would have to say if God is triune, before he created anything, before creation, he has always been Father, Son, Spirit. He has always been Father, Son, Spirit because the Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal. These are eternal, these are attributes that belong to the very essence of who God is, where the Father, Son, and Spirit belong. So there's always been a Father, there's always been a Son, and there's always been a Spirit. understanding where he supersedes our, our ability to grasp what we see here and now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if he's eternal, he's beyond time. Yeah. We, we exist in, in a way that our experience is kind of limited by our understanding of the time. And so it, it makes sense to me to say, well, if, if God's eternal, then there are going to be things about God that I'm going to have difficulty in understanding. Yeah. Just with my limited capacity as a human. Yeah. And and I, I think that lends itself also to giving credence to what we said earlier, that God is supreme. Um, yeah, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, which is all, our whole existence up yeah. to this point in understanding, right? Uh, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's Psalm 90, uh, verse 2. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's really good. God created time itself, right? Um, and this also, because of this reality, this explains or helps explains um, for us uh, what is commonly known as the cosmological argument. I wasn't necessarily going to go here, um, but you just made me think of it. The cosmological argument is one of the ancient proofs that God exists. How do we know there's a God? Well, everything needed to have a cause to bring it to happen, right? Everything has a cause. So if you think of like a big chain 
from the ceiling coming down. You could say, what's the cause of this link in the chain being here right in front of me? Well, you say the cause of that is the link right above that. Well, what's the cause of this link here? It's, it goes all the way up. And then at the very end, there has to be some outside force of the chain itself to be able to hold that chain up. So therefore, there has to be some outside force, force outside of eternity, of time itself, to have started it all. Right? And that's known as the cosmological argument. That there has always had to have been um, a first cause, but not just a first cause, uh, something outside of the cause itself to have created the cause. Uh, something outside of time itself to f- create the very first thing in time. So someone might say, well, what caused God then if everything needs to have a cause? But that's missing the argument because we're arguing that there has to be something outside of time itself to have created the very first thing. Just like what created the very first chain in the link to be there. Well, it has to be something outside of the chain itself, the ceiling holding it up. God could do that because he is eternal. Right? Anything else we want to add on God's eternality? I only picked four attributes because I thought we would have a lot of discussion. Yes. I don't know if this is the right time or place. Oh, um, I would go be for it. To hear what you say. I've had a child ask me, um, so I, I you know, give my explanation. If God is eternal, he doesn't need us, um, why did he then create people? So I'm just curious, what, like, do you have any of your youth asking that, and how do you answer that beyond, well, we're for his pleasure, we're here to glorify him? Yeah. Uh, I, I do have an answer. Uh, and how I would try to articulate it. Um, but how I would try to articulate it, I think many people might think sounds very selfish of God. And so my answer would be that God created us. And you see, this is the reason for many things in the in scriptures. Um, for his own glory. Um, yeah, so he created us. The purpose of life is to glorify God, right? But why did he uh, create us? Well, God is incredibly glorious. And we'll talk about what glory is, right? It's a, I would say glory is a combination of all of his attributes on display. Glorious is holiness, his power, his um, mercy, all of these things demonstrating who he is on display. That's glorious. That is who God is, right? So God created us, the world, creation itself, to display, to show his great glorious name. Um, because he is so big and so glorious, he wanted, and rightly so, to uh, put that on display for all of time, creation, whatever you want to say. Um, And so that's why our job is then to glorify him, because that's what we were created to do. Um, So, like I said, some people might push back on me and say, well, that might mean or it might sound like then God is very self-focused, right? If anyone else were to have done that, that's very, um, that's very self-focused, right? But who is God? God is the greatest being, the ultimate good uh, that there is. And so there couldn't be anything more good for God to do than to show off his goodness, Right? 
creature, and if he is non-changing, he is a creator. Mm -hmm. He created us because that's what he does. Mm. He creates things. Yes. And so, what would somebody who creates something want to share a creation? Yeah, that's true. That's true. See, isn't this fun to like <laughs> talk about who God is? Because, I mean, this is, I think, the fun stuff of theology is not necessarily trying to figure out when the end times is going to be. I mean, that might be fun too for some individuals. Um, but for me, and hopefully for us, it's talking about who God is, right? In a ways that blows our minds because that causes us to worship him. And this goes back then to the, very, to the second week of what we've talked about, right? The task of theology ultimately um, is to glorify God, to talk things that are right about God for his pleasure and for his goodness, for our benefit. Um, and that's why we're supposed to do it with a heart of humility and worship because it's meant for worship. Uh, so as we learn more about the awesomeness of God, it should draw our hearts more into worship because we're drawn more into the beauty of who he is. being that it sounds selfish. Um, it does sound selfish on a surface level, but once we dwell on God's greatest accomplishment in sending his son to um, die for us, then the selfishness, I mean, to me, is like mm. completely removed. Mm. So, and like, why did God die for us? Yes, for us to have eternal life in him, to, for us to be able to be saved which is the gospel, right? But it's ultimately for us to be able to enjoy his greatness with him and therefore glorify him properly. So then still making it about himself. But we benefit greatly from it, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. We usually make ourselves great. We do it at the expense of somebody else, others, but when God makes himself great, it's to everybody else's benefit. Yes, yeah, definitely. Like, I don't benefit you from focusing on myself and making myself great, but you greatly benefit when God does that, definitely. So that's really good. Yes, that's true. But then also times, God shows his greatness in ways that doesn't necessarily benefit the individuals. Right? I mean, we see God's wrath being poured out all throughout the Old Testament in judgment. I wouldn't say that's benefiting the people who are being destroyed and slaughtered in those moments. right? But God is being glorified because his holiness is being preserved. Um, so there's both components of it. But it's done not for, it's, his greatness is not displayed for the non-believer. You're right. It, it was those that followed him. Yeah. God displays his greatness ultimately for himself, right? But we as believers, as children of God, get to benefit to actually see it. 
on display. Those who aren't saved aren't going to recognize it, right? So you're right about that. Moses talked with God a lot, mm. spent a lot of times in his discussions with him. He knows his personality. So when he makes rational statements to God, well, you wouldn't do this because people would say that you brought us out into the desert to destroy us because he knows that God, the character of God, that the character is, is his greatness needs to be displayed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's really good. So, God is supreme. Therefore, the the Father, Son, and Spirit are supreme, right? It's talking about their authoritative will. Remember last week we talked about there is what it mean, what do we mean when we say God is one? We're talking about His nature. Well, what does that all encompass? I mean, it's His divine will and His action in the world, which is what we'll talk about next week. Uh, so we see his authoritative will um, being unified and being one as the Father, Son, Spirit. And then also the Father, Son, Spirit are all three eternal. And now we're talking about the holiness of God. God is holy. Now let me start reading uh, some of these references here. We have Exodus 15:11. Uh, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic and holy, awesome and glorious deeds, Doing wonders. Leviticus 19.2 Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Isaiah three, or, uh, 6, three, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 1 Peter uh, 1.15-16 But as he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We see that right uh, in Leviticus, as we just read. Uh, quick uh, quote here, Stephen Charnock. Um, he's an English Puritan. Um, but he said, in referencing this, how, how we are to be holy because God is holy, he says... Uh, This is the prime way of honoring God. We do not so glorify God by elevating admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous pompous services of him as when we aspire to a conversing with him with unstained spirits and and live to him in living like him. So here we're saying he's commenting on how the prime way of honoring God is to live holy lives. Uh, The other things here he lists, I would say you obviously do honor God in those things. Um, But if you aren't living like him, if you're not being holy as he is holy, you're not demonstrating that. Right? You can see that in the last line where he says, and live to him, to live, what it means to live to him, um, what that means is to live like him, right? Is in living like him. Uh, he says that a little bit strange in this quote, but um, ultimately the prime way of honoring God is to live a holy life because we are displaying again 
the glory of God. We're displaying who God is here in this world. Um, the purpose of life, what is the purpose of life? Is to glorify God. How do we glorify God? By demonstrating who he is in this world. One of the prime ways to do that is to show his holiness is to be holy. Um, and here also, we see some of these attributes could be then associated in some sense to us. Um, we are not holy in the way God's holy, right? But in some sense, uh, there could be some of these attributes associated with us. Obviously, his, the fact that he is supreme can't be associated with us. We are creatures. So not all of his attributes can be associated with us, but some can. Uh, and what this is called, um, you don't need to remember these things, uh, but, and I wasn't going to say this, but it just came to my mind. Uh, the difference between these is we have communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes are things that we could share, and some of the attributes that we could share, like his holiness, would be a communicable attribute. Um, his supremacy would be an incommunicable attribute, something we can't share in. Um, but let me finish reading these references and let's talk a little bit more about it. First uh, John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This isn't necessarily, you use the word holy in it, but we see the idea that in him there's no darkness at all, right? Uh, Revelation fifteen four. who will not, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. We talked about revelation, right, for two weeks. Uh, natural and special revelation and how they have been revealed. Uh, we see they've been revealed in creation. And we see that they've been revealed in God's word and special revelation. So God is holy. Um, Concluding thoughts on God's holiness. Because God is holy, he is glorious. It talks about the glory of God uh, in the first verse in Exodus. Right? Because God is holy, he is glorious. God's glory is his holiness and other attributes, I would say, on display. And we kind of already talked about that. Right? Uh, second bullet point, God is holy because there is no darkness in him at all. We know holy means to be set apart. Right? To be set apart for God. Um, to not have sin. And then the third bullet point I have here, God alone is holy because of his righteousness and is therefore worthy of worship. God is worthy of our worship because he is holy, um, which is seen in his perfect righteousness. Right? This is why we worship God. He is the only one that deserves to be worshipped because he is the only one that's perfectly, supremely, eternally holy, right? And we see how these attributes all fit together to describe the one perfect God. What are some other thoughts after reading through these passages? His what? His rage. That helps mm-hmm. when we are disobedient, when we do things against what he wants us to do, and when we choose to know he wants us to do. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just part of his holiness because he's perfect. He expects more of us. Definitely. So, I mean, it speaks right into his, his wrath, right? He's 
perfectly, and he's able to be perfectly and rightly wrathful towards sin because he is holy, um, because he is perfect in his righteousness, and he can't have any uh, stain of sin. Right? It's to miss the mark, right? Um, to be outside of what it means to be set apart, right? It's a very scary place to be. You just have to read the Old Testament. Uh, right now, in the student ministry, working through Ezekiel, and this past Sunday, we went through a lesson where it was very scary because you see the wrath of God on display in uh, many parts throughout the Old Testament. And so as we worked through the Bible in the year in 2020, I had someone ask me, um, why do we see all this violence in the Old Testament? And I mean, my answer was, is because we get a clear picture in a physical way of what the wrath of God looks like to show us what we have been saved from. Right? Um, and that's incredibly important. Um, so we could appreciate and recognize the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of God's grace. As well as our need for it. As well as our need for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the destruction it causes, right? We see that a lot. Back to a while ago when you said, you know, we can share and correct me if I repeat you wrong. That's I'm fine. Down, I'm down, I'm off. Um, just how we can share in some of his attributes, but not all. And like we can share in his holiness, but obviously we can't share in his supremacy. And, and I was hearing you verbalize it that way just made me think. Oh. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, but he provided through this Holy Spirit. And just that gratefulness and that, I was like, I'll keep it over again. <laughs> you know, just, it's a great responsibility. Yeah, just, it was kind of like, oh, like this, just hearing, I don't know, just, I don't know, just the way you put that together just kind of shed a different light on that for yeah. me. And that kind of was a little bit daunting for a split second. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, he was like, but that's where my Holy Spirit comes in. Yeah. Like, I provided that for you. I'm not asking that of you because you're not capable. Yeah. That's what my whole, anyway, so. Yeah. It's true. The Holy Spirit is the one who joins us to Christ, right? And he is the perfect image of God, as Colossians 1.15 tells us. We are images of God. We are made in God's image, but because of sin, it distorted and broke that image. So therefore, we need one to perfectly image God for us on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit is the one who joins us to him to be able to do that. Um, and going off of what you said uh, just now as well, um, it's a great weight on us as Christians to represent God well in this world, right? Um, so when we sin against someone else, right? Yes, you're sinning against someone else, but also you're sinning against God because you are lying about who God is in your action, right? We are to be holy because God is holy. If we act in a way that's contrary to that, we are lying about who God is in our actions. Because we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ here in this world. We are representing Christ here in this world, right? To display him, going back to what we were saying earlier, 
why God created us, the world. So when we lie, cheat, whatever it may be, right, we are ultimately sinning before God. He's relying about who he actually is. I don't know. What are some other things we could write in this line um, about God's holiness? I think we said a lot. Right? You can make maybe a comment on the fact in Isaiah passage it says, holy, holy, holy. And we see that also again in Revelation, a different passage in Revelation, um, the, where it's repeated three times and the significance of that. Right? And that's the one attribute of God where it's actually repeated three times in a row. And we see the angels of God uh, declaring that. Um, so this is why many people might say holiness is one of the central att- attributes of God. Um, but as we've been learning, right, you can't just single out one attribute and say, well, this is distinct from the rest. I mean, they're ultimately all tied together to describe the one simple God. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. All right, I have a question on the bottom of page two here. How can God be the only holy one if we are also to be holy. We're commanded to be holy. Uh, that's a communicable attribute, as we said. Um, but uh, one of the passages said, you are the only holy one. Oh yeah, and the very last one, Revelation 15, 4. Who will, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. So, if this is true, God alone is holy, how can we hope ultimately to be holy as we're commanded to? We kind of answered it already, but I'm going to hear us bring it up. We haven't done it ourselves. He's declared us holy, and so we need to act like it. Yes. And it's a very good word that you used, right? Declaring us holy. Uh, because that talks about uh, justification. We're justified. We're declared. It's a Legal term in the sense that um, that God alone can make it happen, right? It's not something we're trying to do on our own. Um, the technical terms for this is um, forensic justification versus like um, um, infusion type of justification uh, where it's gradually infused into us as we work for it, right? We don't work for it in any way. It's declared on us. So that's really good. So ultimately, yes, we know God is the only holy one. And we can be holy as he commands us because we are united to him who is the holy one. Right? God is the one and only Holy One who is perfect in His holiness. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to unite us to Christ who is uh, ultimately the bridge to God the Father. We see the Trinitarian construct there. Um, And all three persons are ultimately holy 
as these are the attributes that we're talking about that are associated with all three persons of the Godhead. So it's not our holiness, it's God's holiness in us. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Right? There's a, one song that Pastor Sam likes to sing. And you can attribute that concept with a lot of different attributes that come from God. Um, such as, I think, of God's love. Right? Our ability to love as God commands us to love, we're only able to do that when we are united to him who is the source of that love. Um, I mean, I think of like how God tells husbands, I mean, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So we're supposed to love the same way God loves. I mean, that's a huge responsibility. It's just like the same responsibility of be holy for I am holy. How am I supposed to do that? Well, you can only do that if you're actually joined to the source of that exact same love. Um, so it's not something we're able to produce on our own. But you could actually have access to it when you are joined to the one who has it. And you could maybe say the same thing with other attributes, right? So that's good. All right, now we're going to get into the one where I think a lot of this discussion is going to, a lot more discussion is going to come out. Um, hopefully I saved enough time. So the Lord Yahweh is immutable. Uh, this isn't a term that's as known, right? But it ultimately means unchanging. He is ultimately forever the same. Um, so let me read through some of these passages. We'll go through it. And I promise we will talk about the counterpoints that are brought up um, as that pertains to this topic. Right now, you might say, well, how could there be counterpoints? But you'll see. Um, so, Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, uh, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel, this is referring to God, will not lie or have regrets, for he is not man that he should have regrets. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted or prevented is what that means. Psalm 33.11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Psalms 10, or 105, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Isaiah 46, 10 through 11, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel, from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That's referring to Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, in that Isaiah passage. Uh, Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you. This is referring to the people of Israel, who the you is. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of uh, Jacob, are not consumed. 
uh, Hebrews 6, uh, 17 through 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to, uh, to the heirs, I think that's supposed to be, of the promise, uh, the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two uh, unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The two unchanging things there are referring to the promise that's listed earlier in that verse and then the oath, the promise God made to Abraham and then the oath that rests on the very being of who God is. All right, let's look through my concluding thoughts and then we will get into the big discussion. Uh, Eternally, the Father, Son, and Spirit are never changing, right? I think that's a safe thing to be able to say. The attributes of God are never changing. His love, his mercy, his justice, etc. We saw a couple passages in here where it says his love is continuous, right? Um, His mercy is always there. Um, He's faithful from generation to generation is what it says. So his attributes are never changing. Humans cannot change the perfect authoritative will of God. This is talking, going back to his supremacy. Because God's supremacy is not dependent on man. God is higher than man. He is above his creation um, and he does as he pleases. The humans cannot change the perfect authoritative will of God because God's supremacy is not dependent on man. I think this will lead us into some discussion. Uh, let's look at this question really quick and this is where we're going to get into it. If God is immutable, if God does not change in terms of his being and his knowledge, right, what he desires, what he wills, why does God repent in Scripture? So now let's look to some passages in in the Bible where it uses the term that God regrets or that he repents. And then we're going to talk about how do we put these things together. So next page, um, you can see I did a little word study there for you about the word that's translated as repent or regrets, depending on what translation you have. But the main two I want to look at are the Genesis passage and the First Samuel passage on the next page. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 6 through 7. This is right uh, before he's about to destroy the world with the flood, right? Uh, and the Lord was sorry that he had made, uh, that he had made what he had made on the earth. Um, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. If you look to, this is an ESV translation. If you look at the KJV, um, it uses the word repent in all of these circumstances. I repent that I have made them, or the idea I regret that I have made them. And then also, the other famous one, we have 1 Samuel 15, I'm looking at verse 11 and 35 specifically. Um, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over 
Israel. And I put a lot of other passages we could look at, which we're not going to right now. Uh, we don't have time, but you can look through these more so on your own. And if you use the KJV translation, right, it uses this word that you could see on top of this page in all of these circumstances. It's the exact same word in all of these verses um, that's used. Uh, and you could see other passages in the KJV where God uses the term repents or has this idea of repenting uh, there. And then you can see also other passages in KJV where God says he does not repent. But it doesn't necessarily say he doesn't re- repent because he can't change. It just says in that situation he doesn't. Um, so what are we supposed to do with these? If God is unchanging, right, the Father, Son, and Spirit are unchanging, was what it seems like in all these other passages we look at. Um, and I want to draw your attention specifically to the very first two points, A and B, under four, uh, uses the language, he, I do not regret. I, I do not lie. I am not a man that I shall, should have regrets. So we see here, it says, I do not regret. But then in other passages, it says that he does in that idea. Um, Specifically, the first Samuel 15 passage about Saul, right? In that exact same chapter, you have two verses where it says he regrets or repents. But then also in the middle, it says, and the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So in the very same chapter, you have language where it seems like God regrets, right? Where he changes his mind in a way. But then here in the very middle, it says, well, he's not a man that he should even regret, that he doesn't regret uh, because he is unchanging. So we see the dilemma. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, don't read if you haven't, hopefully you haven't read this quote next. Um, this is my stance on it, and this is how I would reconcile these things. Um, but I want to hear some of you guys' thoughts at this point on this. Um, how are we supposed to reconcile these things? We know Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Um, so we need to study God's Word to know exactly in what sense this word should be translated. Um, like I said, in the KJV, it's always translated as, I regret. Um, you can see the definition. This is the Strong's Concordance definition I have on, for you on p- top of page four. The simplest definition is to be sorry or to counsel oneself, to be sorry that you did something. Um, so you see regrets plays into that. Um, so what are you guys' thoughts? Have you guys thought through this before? A little bit. I had never thought about, like when you say God is unchangeable, I thought I would think about it as his qualities, you know, he's always loving and, you know, all his attributes are not changing. Mm-hmm. I never thought about it of him mm. changing his mind, you know. Yeah. I didn't think that that was what it meant, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's referring specifically to, like, his desires, his will, his mm-hmm. ultimate will. Um and so we could look back to other sections also, right, in here, where it talks about how he's eternal, how he's supreme, and that's talking about his authoritative will. He has purposed, and he will accomplish it. 
right? Well, if he changes his mind, what he has purposed is what he desires to do. Then he could change his purpose or what he wants to do, right? Um, has ability to change his mind. That does not mean that it changes who he is. Right. Yeah. But but it, it does. If if Jesus being the being God prayed to the Father when he's about to go to the cross, hey, but when did he say, well I know it's not gonna happen, why would he have that discussion with the Father mm-hmm. if he didn't think that there was any potential chance of what he was about to do did it really have you know is this the only way yeah i will do it if this is the only way because i'm obedient to the father and i know what i'm doing it for but if there's another way you know yeah so there is you know otherwise that whole prayer suddenly with the trinity yeah has is a frustration because there is no thing, and the, pre- the the Jesus saying, you know, come, and then even if there if you go to a judge who doesn't want to give you the thing, and this is talking about prayer, it's talking about prayer, mm. but you're consistent that judge will give you something just to get you to go. He's saying to be consistent and like. Through prayer, we can change the mind of God because it's a relationship into a part. Now, is it going to change his character? No, because he's a giving God. He wants to give us that. That's his nature is to is to give us something. He's a loving God. Could I say something also really quick? Like, So prayer, right, as you brought up, is a great thing to bring up in this discussion. Like, What is the role of prayer then if God doesn't change his mind in that sense? Um, uh, if you've heard of R.C. Sproul, he passed away recently, but um, probably more than recently now. Uh, but he, you reminded me of something he once said. He said, uh, he, first off, I want to qualify this and say he is one to say that God doesn't change his mind ever, so you know what perspective he's coming from. Uh, but he would say, how funny is it to think when I pray I could change my, God's mind in the sense of I am bringing up something to God, potentially that he, have, he has not thought through to show that there's a better option in the way he should act. And he said, how arrogant is it of me, this is R.C. Sproul saying this, to be able to think I can suggest something to God that he hasn't already thought through or he doesn't know better than what I suggest. Um, so he would argue that the purpose of prayer ultimately is to in line our views into God's views, right? That's what it means in the James passage that we should be praying as God wills. Um, I personally would fall more into that boat, but I understand as well um, there's disagreements in that. See, if, if prayer has no effect on the thing and it's just me, then that's not relational. And it's a relation I have with God. And they're in a relation... There's communication both ways, mm. and because of the relation, there is giving yeah. and 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 flow based on the relationship, you know, that we develop. Yeah. And that it's not just this. I pray 
to become more like God, I pray because I have a relationship with God, and that's how I communicate. All yeah. the prayers with Jesus, he's communicating not to change himself. He's communicating with God the Father, and he is, is an example of the communication because he is separated, sort of, and that's the way he reconnects back with his Father, who he has spent eternity before and after I agree with everything you said there, right? That prayer is a communal thing, right? It's a relationship thing. Yeah. Yep. Prayer is definitely that personal communication with God, right? It is because we have a personal relationship with God. We should be praying. 100%. I would agree with that. Yes. Again, I would like to go and like read all these other passages to see if my line of thinking is correct. So I'm going to share my line of thinking and sure. see if Linda missed the boat. If yeah. I missed the boat, okay. <laughs> so, again, as I, as I look at these, the Genesis and Samuel one, I guess my thinking along those lines as I'm reading it, and again, yes, God, he never changes his mind. And again, he was not surprised by any of this. He knew it was going to happen. But I feel like when I look at these, I, I don't see him changing his I see it more as a grievance. Mm. Like, I don't, I should have done this differently. I just see it as, like, this is my creation. I love them. And, like, I knew they were going to choose poorly, but, like, yeah, it's just him grieving. Yeah. Like, am I off? Or No, I agree with that. Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's him grieving, it's ultimately. Like a, yeah. And, like, if you look at the Genesis 6 passage, God knew that th- this would be the outcome. He knew that he would need to have Noah to build an ark. Um, but there he says that he regrets or repents, depends on what translation you use, that he created the world. Um, does that mean God at that point desired to have gone back in time and never have created anything? Well, of course not, right? It was always God's plan to create. Um, let me, we're running out of time. I'm sorry, I didn't give a lot of time for this. And I wanted, I wish we could talk about this more because I think this is, a uh, worthwhile discussion. But I'm going to read Arthur Pink's explanation. I think this is very helpful. Um, and this is how I would ultimately explain it. It says, when speaking of himself, this is when God speaks of himself, he frequently accommodates his language to our limited capacities. He, desi- he describes himself as clothed with bodily members, as eyes, ears, hands, etc. He speaks of himself as waking, as rising early, yet he neither slumbers nor sleeps. When he institutes a change in his dealings with men, he describes his course of conduct as repenting. It's the way he changes his dealings with men. Not that he didn't see that was going to happen and then changes his mind and wants to do something else. He's not changing in that sense, but he's changing his dealings and how he uh, works out things with men. That's always been planned since the beginning of creation. Jesus was not um, option two. That was planned in the very beginning because he knew that humanity was going to sin. If you look at Genesis 6, that repents, that regret there is not referring to that God desired in that moment to never have created the world. In the very beginning, Jesus was option number one. God knew before time exactly what was going to happen, what was he going to do, then how can this say he institutes a change in his dealings with men? He 
just he already knew mm -hmm. this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Correct and saying he needs to change. Well, you could, um, so if you change your dealings with people knowingly before you could go into it, right? So say you're a first grade teacher, whatever, and you're, the way you teach to them is going to be completely different. And, no, and let's think um, next year, you're, you know, you're going to become a seventh grade teacher, right? You're going, you knowingly are going to change the way you deal with your students. Um, in the same way, God knowingly beforehand um, it wasn't something that was dependent on humanity that caused him to change, because that means he would be dependent on us in some sense. Um, but since he is supreme, right, right he desires. Again, I disagree with the word change being used. Mm. It's not that he changed his dealings. It's that he knew before time how he would need to deal in these different situations. Yeah. So I, I kind of disagree with it saying. Okay. I could, I could understand that. It could be cleared up better. Let me uh, go through these final concluding thoughts. And then we have to wrap up. I'm sorry. Um, the supremacy, God's supremacy is seen as the eternal, unchanging holiness, right? So those are the things that we talked about. Because God is one in essence who subsists or exists as the Father, Son, Spirit, then these attributes of God belong to all three persons. The authoritative will of God, Father, Son, Spirit, is eternal. That's never changing. The Father, Son, and Spirit is the one supreme, eternal, holy, and immutable God. There are only, there are no ontological attributes. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. Besides his eternal relations of origin, that's something we talked about last week. The relations of the fatherhood, sonship, and spirit of God that belong to a single person of the God alone. Saying all these attributes belong to all three persons of the Godhead. Um, six, the only thing that distinguishes the different persons of the Godhead ontologically, who he is in and of himself, Right, is that the Father is the Father of the Son, and the Son is the Son of the Father, and the Spirit is the Spirit of breath of the Father and the Spirit, or Father and the Son, eternal relations of origin. Um, I wish we could talk more about it. Good thing we have next week as well to talk more about the Trinity. Again, work through this glossary to help um, with some of these languages or with some of these terms and how I'm referring to it. Uh,